Is this, is this an actual microphone today? Is it connected? Does it sound like it's connected? Okay. Oh, okay. Cool. I know, I'm like, we don't use a mic here. I just shout. <laughs> oh, well, good to see everybody. Uh, my name is Bethany. I'm one of the pastors here and wanted to welcome you to Catalyst and to church and to fellowship here uh, with us today. So um, I'm, I'm glad that you're all with us. I'm stoked to see you all. Um, a couple announcements to go through before we get into God's word this morning. Uh, the first is that tonight we are starting kind of a probably a monthly gathering here at the church where uh, we are going to look at conversations around Jesus and areas of, um, of life that might be avoided in the church, might be a little bit hard to talk about. Um, and, you know, we talk about things as they come up in the scripture, but sometimes these things just don't come up in the scripture. So tonight's topic will be Jesus and anxiety and worry. And looking at what, not just what scripture says and our own experiences with Christ's healing presence in our lives, but also kind of what the world says and, um, and the things that we've all experienced from time, uh, different times in our lives. So this is something that Catalyst is partnering with InterVarsity with. And so there'll be hopefully some college students that show up that do experience some anxiety and worry and uh, are looking to see what, uh, what the church and what Jesus says about those things. So if you would like to join us, this is for anybody who would like to come. 7 o'clock here, we'll have some pizza, and um, it's not just going to be like Jason talking the whole time, or me, or Danielle, or anybody else. It's going to be really a conversation uh, between everybody. Do you have anything that you want to say about it? No, just um, really want to hear what the wishes and yeah. Elle, what were you going to say? Yeah, uh, you guys have a goal of like, time frame? Like how, uh, how That's a good question. Bring your shoes back. I think, well, I mean, we, we set it up for like an hour, mm-hmm. like 7 to 8, and then, you know, we'll just kind of see how it goes. Yeah. Like, it's just kind of going somewhere that's great, but it, you know, it feels like we've got to set everything that needs to be said, and then we'll move on. Yeah, we'll have pizza and that sort of thing. It never is. Oh, wait, this one? Didn't you turn it on? It's on. The red light's on. Well, Facebook people might not be able to hear us today, and that's just fine. <laughs> uh, let's see. The So the other topics that we'll eventually go into would be like Jesus and alcohol or Jesus and weed or Jesus and stress and uh, friendship, social media, things like that. So we will just continue this conversation as, as it's needed. Um, and I would love to invite you all not just to come but also to pray throughout the day. Because uh, there might be, we, we just want the spirit to move really freely in that space um, and that nothing kind of blocks the conversation that needs to happen. So please join us in prayer for that. 
the other thing is we have Bible study on Thursday at my house, 5.30 to 7.30, beans and rice, and we'll look at the next passage moving forward to next Sunday. So you're welcome to join us at Bible study as well. Uh, we usually don't start the scripture portion until about 6.15, so if you're getting off work and you feel like you're going to miss out, don't worry about it. Just come on over whenever you can. Are there anything, uh, any other announcements I'm forgetting? All right. All right, well, let's pray. And then we'll get into God's word. Um, Can you open your hands as a way of releasing this time? Come, Holy Spirit, come. Lord, we, we we are posturing ourselves as a community right now, fully wanting to be aware of your presence, dependent on you, releasing all the things that might keep us from being fully present to your presence. Lord, you you know our hearts. You know each of what we are each going through. And and I pray that, that your spirit and that your word brings wisdom to what we are wrestling through. That you are with us as we discern this world, as we navigate through. Will you remind us that your church is with us, that we are together here in this place? And God, as we go into today's scripture, will you give us fresh eyes, a new perspective, a new way of seeing the ways that you're moving in and through us and around us, the things that you are calling us into? We love you. We thank you for this time. We pray that it blesses you and blesses us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, we are in the book of Mark. We will be in here for a while. Mark was written by a friend of Peter's. Uh, Peter was one of the 12 disciples, and Mark was probably the friend of Peter. Uh, He never met Jesus personally, but he probably felt compelled to write down some of the things that uh, Peter was telling him. Because Mark encountered Jesus through Peter and knew that if he didn't write these things down, other people might not be able to encounter Jesus through the stories of Jesus in the same way that Mark was. And so he, he knew that it was important for the new followers, for the new disciples, for us today even possibly to know Jesus the way that Peter knew Jesus. Uh, so Mark wrote that down for us. Uh, the entire message that Jesus teaches uh, is summed up where Jesus says, Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Throughout Mark, this is the common message. It's it's like, pay attention to how you're living because the way of God's love has arrived. It is here. Be a part of it. You are invited into this love. So Peter was one of the 12 disciples that Jesus had called to follow him. To be a disciple meant that you gave up everything. You gave up your livelihood. You gave up your family, your other responsibilities. For the years you followed your teacher, your rabbi. To be asked by a rabbi to follow him was this incredible honor because it showed that the rabbi believed that you were able to eventually be like him. That you could do what he does. And being a disciple meant that you would progressively emulate and become like your rabbi. So after Jesus rose from the dead and and he's with his disciples and he's about to ascend into heaven and he tells his disciples to go out into the world 
to the ends of the earth to make disciples of Jesus, Jesus was saying in that moment that these followers were ready, that they arrived, that they made it. And I'm sure they were like, I don't know, Jesus. I <laughs> think you're really good at this and we're really good at following. Maybe just a couple more years. Maybe we could follow you for a few more. Man, they fumbled. If you look throughout Acts, they fumbled. They made mistakes. They had to figure out ways of learning how to forgive each other and seek forgiveness of each other. But those early Christians then, and us today, us Christians today, we have the Holy Spirit of Christ with us, within us, guiding us, directing and comforting and moving us towards the ways of Jesus. Jesus told them that he would be with them always, that they would not be alone, that they would be that he would be with them as that he would be with us as we fumble through and as we try to make sense of this life that God has gifted each of us. And we have these limited stories like the Gospel of Mark that shows us Jesus and they reveal to us who God is and how God in flesh behaved while on earth. So we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the Bible, and we have creation like the song we sang earlier about the the, the very sun and the moon cry out. We have those, and then we have each other pointing us to who Jesus is all the time. So last week we looked at how um, Jesus healed two different men at two different times. He healed uh, a a man who was a Gentile man, meaning non-Jewish, uh, and the way that he healed this man who was deaf and mute was incredibly compassionate. It was in a way where this man could understand what Jesus was doing. It was a way that Jesus bestowed dignity and honor to this man. And then the next account was Jesus healing a blind uh, Jewish man. And again, Jesus did this in a way that was intended to bring honor and dignity to this man. And I think these disciples who are following Jesus during this time for a while now, they knew their Bible. They were highly familiar with the hopeful passages of what spoke of who God was going to come through with and the Messiah, that God's promises to rescue Israel from her oppressors and set the world straight. In Isaiah 35.5, we read that a passage that was directed not only to the Jewish peoples, but also to all the nations. And it says that how God will come, and when God comes, the blind will see and the deaf will hear. And I wonder if Jesus' disciples were beginning to understand that Jesus wasn't just another rabbi. They were probably starting to pay attention to a deeper reality of what it meant to repent for God's kingdom has come near because it was unfolding in their midst. It was unfolding while they were there. So uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to just camp out in this passage today. Uh, We'll be in 8, 27 to 33, which is probably pretty familiar for a lot of you. All right, so it says here, uh, Mark 8, 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. 
Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. We're going to introduce something called spiritual discipline, and everyone's going to be called Satan. Just kidding. It's a terrible joke. Um, I've always found that, like, walking with people... (laughs) Thanks, Brianna. (laughs) That was awesome. I've always found that walking with people, like going on walks with friends um, or going on a hike or even, like, a long drive with Jason, I feel like when I'm in those spaces, I have the best times of conversation. Like, I really get deeper with people. I'm more focused when I'm not near my computer or when I'm physically moving and outside of my normal routines. I feel like words flow a little bit more freely when I'm outside. I feel like I can be more aware of what God is up to within that conversation while I'm moving and walking. And I think what I'm seeing in, in, this, in this book, in this, in this Gospel of Mark, is that Jesus seemed to have his best times with his disciples when they were moving around, when they were going from one place to another. And I'm always struck that Jesus was with his disciples for three years. What is that, like a thousand days? They were with Jesus a thousand days, and yet in the Gospels we have, what, 50 days recorded? 50 days out of a thousand days were worth putting in the Gospels. Most of the time was spent commonly walking alongside of each other, traveling from town to town, spending late nights around the campfire and talking, eating dinner around a meal, like with, around the table with stew and red wine and talking about how Matthew stepped in dung again and what is the best way to get rid of that and ceremonially clean before we hit, get to Sabbath and debating and coming up with all sorts of ideas. Regular conversations spent together, becoming closer to each other in the normal, common time. And I think these long walks together, where it says in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. They left from Bethsaida. That's like 35 miles. This is at least a three-day walk. And I'm sure that they were important grounding moments for Jesus with his disciples. But I also think within that small verse that we read there, those three days together there, that things would have been getting progressively uncomfortable as they neared Caesarea Philippi. This is an area we read in the Old Testament uh, that was known for its acceptance uh, and worship of the Canaanite god Baal. It was a place where other gods that were more fertility gods were introduced later on in the history. And then what we read later on, about 300 years before Christ set foot there, is is Alexander the Great was this Greek ruler who, after inheriting this small empire in Mesopotamia, I'm sorry, in Macedonia from his from his father, he had this desire to defeat all of Persia, and he wanted to do this under the guise of Greek liberation. 
And this Greek liberation was called Hellenism. And he went throughout Asia Minor and he conquered those different cities and, and, and conquered the territories. And he would colonize these new provinces with everything that had to do with Greek lifestyle. But instead of making each city Greek, he would actually create new cities. And he would make them very, like, just better and stronger and more cosmopolitan, more cultured, where then the neighboring cities wouldn't be conquered at this place, this place of, like, regret and begrudgingly, like, oh, they came in and changed all of our ways. They would look at those other cities and be like, that's who we want to be. We want to be like the Greeks. And it kind of created this whole system throughout the world where it was completely Hellenized. And everywhere he went, he would bring this sort of culture of, of uh, the best, the brightest, the most beautiful sorts of people were elevated. And as his army passed by this area in at the base of a, of a mountain called Mount Hermon, they found a spring during that time that they thought was bottomless, that would go on as far as the eye could see. And there was a belief back then that the waters that you could not plumb the depth of actually reached to the underworld. It was a place where you could access Hades, you could access hell. And so they set up a shrine to the Greek god Pan. I think we have some pictures. Do we have those, Paul? Um, they set up a shrine to the Greek god Pan, who was a half goat, half human god. Uh, and then they would, people would just travel from all over the known world and they would go to worship this Greek god and, and they would worship this god through these dances with goats and they would have goat sacrifices in this little, this big part of the cave is where the spring was. I think there's a couple more pictures too, are there? Um, and then those little, yeah, so this is, this is like an artist's drawing of what it would have looked like. Um, and there's little divots in the mountain and the rock there. And on that rock, um, each of those divots held space for different uh, gods to be placed there, different uh, ideas of um, fairies and all sorts of interesting things. And so what they would do is they would have these ceremonies for this god. And it would be fairly erotic. It would be demoralizing to both humans and goats. It was a very, um, it was a very, very dark space. And so Jewish people knew about this because eventually what happened was was uh, when when Rome came through after Alexander the Great had died, Rome came through more in a violent way and took over spaces like this. Uh, but instead of getting rid of the Greek gods, they would just allow those gods to exist and then they would set up other things for their gods. So Herod the Great set up the temple over there on the left-hand side and he set up that for the Caesars to be worshipped and the Roman gods to be worshipped. So this is a very... Uh, important space in the known world. The Jewish people would never set foot in a space like this. They wouldn't even want to get close to it because it was so evil. They would not think twice about setting foot near this spring. And it's in this place, in this place where there are many gods and many perspectives and many acceptable forms of worship of whatever way that you want to worship because it all belongs, that Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? What are you hearing about me? 
Mark mentions throughout the entire gospel, he mentions the crowds all the time, how the crowds are with Jesus and he feeds them by multiplying fishes and loaves. There's the crowds that are making it, making it impossible for people to get in and out of a house, so they have to rip off the roof to get people down to see Jesus. There's the crowds that are running him out of town. There's the crowds that are, that are following him everywhere he goes. There's the crowds later on who yell, crucify him. The crowd is a common Thing. And so when Jesus is with a crowd, I imagine that the disciples are in the crowd. And the disciples are probably getting a pulse on who Jesus is known for, on the perspective. And I wonder if they're influenced, like Jesus saying, who do people say I am among all these other gods? I wonder if they're becoming influenced by other people's perspectives. I wonder if they hear similar things like you and I hear about Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, he's a good teacher. Oh, Jesus, he was a really incredible guru. Yeah, I would. I think his teachings were really important. They help us understand how to live life better. They, they make things understandable in some ways. Yeah, Jesus. I'm okay with Jesus. Jesus has answers to my problems. Yeah, he's a cool guy. And I think Jesus wanted to know whose perspectives are influencing you about who I am. Whose voices are louder or carrying more weight than mine in your life right now? And the disciples answer, well, Jesus, some, some people say that you're a prophet from the past, like you're, that, you're the guys who helped influence and define our entire religious system. Like you're an important person, obviously. Like some people think that you're the dead guys with great historical importance. This is what we're hearing, Jesus. And then Jesus says, okay, but what about you? What have you noticed about me? What does your gut say? And Peter speaks up boldly and says, you are the Messiah. You are the one that makes the blind see and the deaf hear. You are God's chosen one that we've all been waiting for. Now, if Jesus just stopped there with that declaration would it have been enough? If we just ended there, if the story ended there, you are the Messiah, and that's the end of it, would it have been enough? Would have Peter and the rest of the disciples understood what that actually meant? You are the, you are the Messiah. What would that have meant for them? And there, I, I think that they certainly thought they knew what it meant. I, I mean, I think many of us have similar ways that when we say that we're Christians, like with that label, oh, we're a Christian, then oftentimes we have to put that little sub-label on that says, but we're not like those Christians, you know? Like the name Christian holds so many definitions and meanings, we almost have to redefine it in some way. And I'm sure those Christians are looking at all of you and they're like, we're not like those Christians. So we're all in the wrong space, I'm sure. But Peter was right. Jesus is the Messiah. However, Peter thought he fully understood what that word meant. For him, and for those who were influenced in his thinking, and influenced his thinking, the Messiah was a physical rescuer, a warrior, who was going to kick butts and take names and overthrow Rome or whatever oppressor might be into Israel, and they were going to make Israel great again. That was the entire premise about who the Messiah would be from their perspective. 
We believe the perspectives we're influenced by. That's why if you just consume right-wing thinking or just consume left-wing opposite thinking, it influences the way we view the world. If you are so obsessed with one way of thinking and you can't see the other side, we are missing something that Jesus is inviting us into, which looks very different than the world's standards of living. (laughs) In Matthew 16, uh, in Matthew's gospel, so if you remember in the beginning when we were talking about Mark ages ago, Mark was the first gospel that was written. He was using Peter as his source, more than likely. Matthew used Mark as a source and then another source named Q, which we don't know who exactly wrote that. But Matthew wrote a gospel as well that was just a little bit more, it was focused on other people, and it was a little bit broader in its way of writing. And so we see the same account in Matthew 16. You're welcome to turn there. You don't have to, of course, but because um, I'm not going to read it necessarily. But Peter, Jesus, Jesus asks Peter or all of them, "Who do you think I am? Who do you say I am?" And Peter announces that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus praises Peter by saying that this truth was shown to Peter by God. And this truth is one where the gates of hell couldn't stop it. Where do we hear that word, gates of hell? That spring, that spring was known as the gate to the underworld, the gate to hell. And Jesus is saying that this is how things will go. This Messiah, this gates of hell will not even stop that. And then he says, he says, near that place, that gate of hell, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And many people believe that he's talking about Peter, since Peter's name means rock, and Peter's the one that answers him. And maybe and likely there is that meaning, but I think that there's a deeper meaning than simply a person in that space. I think that Jesus was making a statement saying that the most deplorable and sinful of people, even those who worship gods like Pan, can be brought into God's kingdom. That even in places like this that they are standing in, My church will influence towards the good of God's kingdom, even in places like this. And it's not a way to destroy this place, but to redeem this place. And it's to redeem it towards the good of God's loving kingdom. And not to not to take these people who are just horrible and evil and wrong and throw them away and forget about them. It was actually a way to set them free from the bondage they were in. To see that there was no unredeemable people out of God's reach. And I wonder if Peter began to look back at these times when he's talking to Mark and recognize all the chances he got while he was with Jesus. And I wonder if the Holy Spirit was still changing his heart to see that no one is out of God's reach or out of the grace and love of of God through Jesus Christ. And I think that in these moments he was talking to Mark, he probably was able to recognize those things. Because when we share our testimony of what God has done, the Holy Spirit moves through us in a way to help us see things that God has done in our lives that we missed the first time around. But Jesus knew that when Peter said what he said about Jesus, it was true that Jesus is the Messiah, but it wasn't complete. 
And Jesus had to tell them to keep quiet for now because he knew that they didn't understand God's plan. They thought they did because God's plans, according to the older and wiser people who influenced them, their perspectives, God's plans looked like war and looked like violence. And for Peter to continue on in this conversation with the crowds about who Jesus was would probably perpetuate to this community this common misunderstanding of what the rescuer and Messiah looked like. So if Peter's like hanging out in the crowds and Jesus didn't say, hey, keep it quiet that I'm the Messiah. And then Peter starts telling, the disciples start telling everybody, you guys, our rabbi, he's the Messiah. He's the one that's come to save us. Then the crowds would get this idea of what the Messiah would look like based on the perspective they'd always known. So Jesus asks his disciples to keep quiet about what they know for now. Just for now. There are areas of confidence I have in my faith with Christ that I speak out boldly over my life. There are areas that I bank on. I bank on God's love for me and for you and for the world and how every person was created with the utmost worth in the image of God. It's already in you. Every person is created in the image of God. I know I am called to love God and love people. I know Christ was a real person, fully God and fully man. He was crucified. He was buried. He rose from the dead. I know resurrection happened, and I also know that it happens every day because God is constantly making me new. I am constantly being reborn and resurrected in the love of Christ because we are always experiencing new life through Jesus Christ. But beyond these convictions, there are areas of gray in my theological understandings that I tend to keep quiet about because Jesus has asked me to do so for now. Where I can't quite say things that people want me to say. And I have to trust that Jesus is moving in spite of those areas. That Jesus is moving in the places that are so clear in my life. Turn with me to Mark, uh, we'll keep on Mark 8, verse 31. It says, um, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Whew. <laughs> a disciple is somebody whose entire life, their whole purpose is to emulate their rabbi. They all wanted to be like their rabbi, to be the one following God's chosen one, their Messiah. And, and like, they're just finding out, like really coming to that concrete conclusion that their rabbi is the Messiah. Like they had the luck of the draw. Out of everybody else who's following a rabbi, we got the Messiah. We're the disciples of the Messiah. Like it would be the greatest honor and greatest, like giving them the best standing in God's kingdom and with the religious authorities based on this, this information they are now having. They'd be famous. They would be respected by association. They would expect to reign and rule next to their Messiah, that the, the son of King David, the son of God, seated to Christ's right and left hand. 
These are not dumb or ignorant people. I think sometimes we read the, these, these accounts and we're like, how does Peter just not get it? He's so dumb. Like, how do the disciples, how are they missing this? Man, they just, they had been students of their culture for years before they became students of Jesus. They didn't know what we know because they hadn't read the story yet. They were living the story. And so for Jesus to teach them what following him would lead to, not glory, not riches, not honor, but rejection from everyone you've ever respected or placed on a pedestal and then killed and then resurrected, whatever that means at that moment then. Man, man, to go from like Jesus being the Messiah and I'm going to get like all this these accolades from all the people I respect to going to, wait, following you means what? And even now, I think even now, as we trust in eternal life, as we trust in God's promises of what's to come after death, it doesn't always make the rejection part or killing part easier. And I think it's okay to admit that. But the truth is, following Jesus isn't going to make your life easier or more prosperous or better from an earthly perspective. And sometimes following Jesus brings about rejection from those who don't understand and historically brings about persecution and death. Jesus never promised ease or wealth or all your dreams coming true, but he did promise that he would never leave you alone in your suffering. Like suffering is a part of being alive. Everyone suffers in some way or another. And and, and as part of the sin of this world, where the sin of other people, people that you love who have hurt you in some way, who, who have caused you direct suffering or even indirect suffering that we are causing through our sin with climate change, other other areas and impoverished places, those sins, those sufferings that we are helping cause, that, that, that is a reality. But Jesus promises to never leave us alone in our suffering. Jesus suffered alone on the cross so you wouldn't need to. Jesus took the consequences of sin and the punishment of death upon himself to set us free from both. There is no fear in death. There is no sting that will last too long. But the disciples, they couldn't hear their fate of their rabbi because it would be their fate too. So Peter tells Jesus, you're wrong. He pulls Jesus aside and says, this cannot be right. This is not how a Messiah behaves. A Messiah couldn't be killed because it would mess up their plans. It would mess up their expectations, their ideas, and their hopes. It would mess up everything they've ever studied their whole life of what the Messiah would look like. And Jesus uses such harsh words and language towards Peter and towards the other disciples because when it comes to their expectations of war and violence and oppression and hate and racism and bigotry, when it comes to harm against oneself and against each other and against this planet, Jesus calls this Satan. He calls out the distractions. He calls out 
our warped perspectives. He calls out those great influencers, the many gods and many idols, and the crowds of complacency and distraction. And Jesus asks us the question that will always remain. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? For the thousands of days that you walked with Jesus and the handful of ridiculous and miraculous moments that you have in your back pocket that you can pull out from time to time, do you know Jesus in the common time? Do you know the Jesus who walks alongside you, loving you, ministering to your heart, reminding you of your purpose in God's kingdom? I think sometimes Jesus leads us along, walks us to places where the gates of hell seem strong, and pulls us to places where destruction might seem really loud. And I think when Jesus leads us to those places, it's not to warp our perceptions, but it's to show us that Jesus is even there. That in those spaces that we would want to avoid, Jesus has already been there. And I think sometimes, I think I am confident that there are people in this room where you guys are called by Jesus to go to those places where the gates of hell reside. And Jesus is saying, plant my church here. You are called to plant my church here. I'm calling you as a pastor. I think Jesus is calling pastors in this room. Jesus has been calling you as a pastor for a long time to actually go to those places and begin the ministry of Christ there those places where most people want to avoid. But to get there, we have to know who Jesus is. So what are the voices that are loudest in your life? Where do you need to get away to walk alongside a road to strip away all those other distracting influencers where Jesus can remind you that he is the way, the truth, and the life? That with Jesus, even the gates of hell can't stand against. Who do you say he is? What does your gut say? Jesus, I, you are the Prince of Peace. You are the King of Kings. You are the Lord of Lords. Jesus, invade our hearts and mind through your spirit. Remind us that you are always with us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us, and that you are calling us to the places that we would want to avoid because it is there that we can do such good work for your kingdom. But remind us, ground us, center us in your love for us and your love for all of humanity. Remind us that you are with us. Jesus, will you show us areas in our lives that are causing distraction, voices that we may have allowed to speak louder than your voice in our lives? May we let go of those. May we walk away from those, knowing that it is with you that we are walking. Lord, we thank you for this teaching. We thank you for for Peter sharing your word, for for Mark being faithful to write it down, and the fact that over 2,000 years this word is still ringing true in our hearts. It is true in our guts. We cannot deny it. May we be confident in those spaces and places.
And may we walk boldly into the places that you're leading us to. It is for your glory and your name we pray these things. Amen. Whew. Every week um, when we meet together here, we, uh, we worship together. It's our time that we call response, where we respond to God's word. We respond to the teaching. Um, we respond to God's love for us and what God is doing in our lives. This is a time for you to worship. We sing songs. We usually sing about three songs together. And we have communion, which is in the back. The bread represents Christ's body broken for you. And the juice represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of anything that has ever happened or you have done. That Jesus is the one that is resurrected. And so once again, we celebrate resurrection. New beginnings in our lives over and over again. We'll give you a piece of the bread and you can dip it in the juice whenever you want to come back. And we'll come together and worship. Amen.